recorded live from the mats of Radical MMA in New York City, the Martial Culture Podcast. Your source for in-depth combat sports and martial arts insights with, with Coach, Coach Renee Dreyfus and, and Matt Peters. Ring the bell and let's get, get it on. Welcome back to another episode of Martial Culture Podcast. Get your pen, get your notebook. You're going to want to take notes during this episode because we have a great one. Renee, absolutely. set the stage for us. I want to get right to it. This is a true, one of the dirty dozen, one of the first non-Brazilian black belts, and also, besides jiu-jitsu, a martial arts pioneer from many different martial arts, a man with tremendous insight who I follow all the time and and, uh, and have been honored to have uh, spoken, have some uh, interaction with, uh, Professor John Will uh, out of Australia. Uh, welcome, John. Hey, thanks very much. Thanks for having us, uh, Renee. Thank you, Matt. Oh, thank you for thank making you. the time. And uh, for those guys who don't know, um, John, you, you, and one of the reasons I, I respect you so much is I started out in traditional martial arts, and I know you got your start in traditional martial arts and, um, and then segued to a lot of different things, and one martial art wasn't enough, and, and you were cross-training before anybody was cross-training. But can you go through your, your martial art background? I know you had that wonderful trip to India, which we discussed when, when we, were, we were chatting, had all those wonderful knife collection and weapon collection. And also, I know, I don't know much about it, but I'd be fascinated to hear about your, your C-Lot training in, in Indonesia as well. Um, but anyway, uh, please, I'll let you, please tell me about yourself. Tell the listeners uh, uh, about your background and... and um, Anything else you'd like to, to add about yourself and your martial journey? All right, I'll, I'll try and keep it short because there's, there's it's a, a lot. lot. Yeah, um, but but um, when I was at school, I wasn't ever academically oriented. I mean, I became academically oriented, you know, when I was in my 30s, I guess, but not when I was at school, right? So when I when I um, finished my school, I was doing martial arts while I was in school. Did um, you know freestyle wrestling? Uh, taekwondo, goju karate, you know, stuff like that. But when I finished my schooling at the age of 17, I'd read some books by a chap you probably know, Don Drager. Yes. He was um, a pioneer, um, one of my early heroes as a, a martial arts heroes as a kid. He was a, he was a U.S. Marine in the Marines, and he, was, um, he traveled and rode extensively. He traveled all through, all through Asia training. He was quite an interesting character. And I, I had some books by him, and I just thought when I left school, I'll just follow in his footsteps. I'll just do that. Sounds like a plan. So I went over to um, Indonesia, you know, and with the intention of training all through Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, China, Japan, India, and so forth, um, following in Drager's footsteps. And then I just got stuck in Indonesia for about eight years, so it slowed me down a little bit. Um, what and what was, made you um, uh, travel to – what was the first country you traveled to? Was it Indonesia first or was it India first? Yes, Indonesia because that's very close to Australia. It's only an hour away. Uh, from the top part of Australia, it's only an hour away. That's it, our Canada. Oh, I see. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, but and it drew, you train in the martial art of Silat where there's that. Is that correct? That's, that's right. Silat is like a, a generic term. It would be like saying Budo. Oh, okay. um, you know, so so when you say silat, you know, it, it covers a vast range, like hundreds of different styles. Some that are just weaponry, some pure grappling, some striking, some a mixture, some MMA-ish. So it's it's vast. Um, so that's a very generic term. And it's, I trained in um, four or five of the main silat styles throughout all of Indonesia, and I did that from about 1975 to 1982. 
before really? I then. Wow, that's fascinating. I, I, my experience wide. with Silat is is interesting because the very first time I ever saw an omoplata was yeah about mm-hmm. 1979, mm-hmm. 1980, and it was oh. from a Silat practitioner doing omoplata, and that was does you know not. That's what, you know. It's interesting to see it, you know, like oh wow, this is something that we associate with Brazilian jiu-jitsu now. Yes. Of course, it's in other martial arts, but that my very first experience was in Silat. So it's a fascinating. You're right. It has some grappling, and 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 were you were you more drawn to the striking arts or to the grappling arts? You had that wrestling background. Is that I was no, I was no, I was drawn to the, <laughs> you know, like the fantasy of it all. Um, you know, like getting superpowers. I wanted superpowers. You know, so <laughs> I've heard um, Silat has a strong mystical element. And... Oh, it's got so much bullshit. It is ninety percent <laughs> bullshit. Um, really? Oh yes. There's because that's tied in with no disrespect, but it's tied into very strongly, especially in Java. It's tied into Islam. Mm. So Islam is a mystical religion you like there's a lot of mysticism interwoven in that particularly in southeast asia their brand of islam is very mystical schmistical so there's a lot of stuff there that's just complete crap bullshit but um uh that that but that's not what i mean that uh, what i what i wanted to get into was um you know just the fantasy of being able to you know jackie chan my way out of problems um you know, with striking, kicking movement and, and all yeah. that stuff. And, and it was great and it was a really good grounding. But what I ultimately got out of it was the idea of cross-training. That was what I ultimately got out of it. The concept of we need to strike and grapple and clinch and take down and we need to fight on the floor and we need to learn how to fight against weapons, with weapons and multiple, you know, that's where right. I got an overview. Right. Yeah, and it's funny because, um, you know, when I was a kid and I started in karate, uh, I had a very unique teacher, uh, Miyazaki Sensei, Miyazaki Tortara Sensei, who was like, cross training is it. He's like, you know, Renee, if you really want to learn how to punch, you really want to learn how to punch, train with a boxer. I'm like, what? I want to do karate. I want to be a ninja. I want to be a samurai. I don't want to do yeah. Western stuff. I want to. And he told me this. He's like, you really, you know, boxers have the best way of teaching and moving their hips. And he's like, if you really, you really need to learn how to grapple too. And of course, I was too young, and I didn't listen to him until you know I was like 13, 12, thirteen. Um, but um, but it's it's interesting that back then, I think we were all closed minded because we wanted to be closed minded. I don't even know, but also the 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 generation itself, most people were not thinking like you, except for Bruce Lee, and a few mm. other standouts like uh, Azuma, you know, um, sensei in, in Japan who was expelled from Kyokushin because he did the biggest sin of combining judo and, and, no. and karate and boxing, you know, because that was such right. a sinful, horrible thing. How could you mm. dis- disgrace everything? But anyway, so I, I just amazing that you were such a forward thinker. And after Indonesia, was that after when you took the trip to India as well or? Um, yes, after Indonesia, I, well, actually... What happened was I started in a magazine called Blitz, which was the Australian martial arts magazine. I, I know it. I know it. Um, it's, it was the number one magazine. I saw it. I, I Googled it. That's why I know it. I don't really know it. But, but I saw it was like yes. the number one magazine for years. Yes, I started that in my – well, well the, 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 I'll give you the short story. It was very funny. There was a magazine called Australian Fighting Arts, and I wrote an article in that magazine uh, about cross-training. And the, some friends of the editor wrote back a scathing retort saying, 
you know, something, you know, what would you know? You're a kid. What would you know about anything? You can't mix your martial arts, says those guys <laughs> who are now teaching mixed martial arts. So there's, there's some irony for you. But um, <laughs> you can't mix your martial arts. And they said all this. I wrote back a reply to that, which the editor refused to publish. Really? So I overreacted, as was my nature at that time of my life. <laughs> I overreacted by going down to a publishing house, asking how much it costs to publish a magazine, because if they're not going to let me reply in their magazine, I'm going to make my own and put them out of business. I love that. So <laughs> I went down there. I found out that it's going to cost me $10,000, which is a lot of money. But I thought if I sell $10,000 worth of ads, I'll break even, and then I'll get my message out. So I ran around got the ads, made the magazine. It had actually made a profit of like four or $5,000. And I thought, wow, I'll do it four times a year, one each season, you know, summer, autumn, spring. And, and so I did that. And that's how I started Blitz Magazine. And it took me 10 issues to put the other one out of business. So then it was And you put them out of business. You really oh did. God. Oh, my oh, God. Yeah, I killed them. <laughs> did you send them a signed copy of the first edition? <laughs> send him a signed copy of the first edition Mueller. note to self uh, never get john I was, will i mad. wasn't that gracious man I was, I was a mutt um wow you'll so go a long way to get they, once that was mission accomplished i got rid of the magazine i sold it you know and so but that but it was in that period of two and a half years of owning that magazine the first 10 issues that's when i was i traveled to india and brazil you know and all over the world because I that that magazine gave me enough money to, you know, just eke a living, right? It was like pocket money, I suppose. Right. So that allowed me, and I was travelling with an excuse, you know, I wanted to go to India, and so I'd get six or eight articles on Kalari Payet down south, or Bhadramushti in the middle, or wrestling in the north, and and then Brazil was part of that whole thing, and that's how I would found Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and and and, and went to India. So it explained that magazine explained a lot of things. Wow, that's uh, that is I did not know that. That was um, that's an amazing story and so incredibly cool. <laughs> and uh, but it, it's it's uh, it's so it's, shallow. So, so can I can I ask you a question? I'm familiar with kushti wrestling in India, but I'm not familiar with the other styles. The Vada Mushti, did I pronounce that correctly? Yeah, Vada Mushti is a style that is now dead, completely dead. I happen to train with the last two living. This sounds like a very weird thing that you'd normally say about ninjutsu or something, but I, I, I train with the last two living guys um, that practice that art. The, the family was called the Jesse Mullers. Jesse Muller, I'm probably pronouncing it incorrectly, so forgive me any people from, from India. Um, the Jesse Mullers literally means, Muller means fighter, Jesse means he who cannot be beaten. So there's a family name. Wow, um, that's, yeah. He, yeah. And they were, a, you, you, could, you could liken that to the Gracie family in Brazil. So their, their family, going back for 1,200 years, were practice, practitioners of this art called Vajramushti, which was basically MMA, so you can imagine striking and grappling um, with a lot of groundwork, just like MMA, except that they had a knuckle duster on the right hand. Uh, absolutely uh, fascinating. Yeah, so hardcore, and and so the men, the men were all trained in that family in that art, and the women were trained in healing, bone setting, um, and all of that. Wow. So, and th th that goes back over a thousand years. Can, can and, I ask you a question? 
Mm-hmm. What of that art or say the Silat arts do you find that you still use today in your in your training? Like you bring it in, like, hey, I learned this and this is useful. Like for me, you know, I I've studied enough not 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 like you. I don't want to put myself on the same pedestal as you, but but I, I started in, in uh karate, I went into Japanese jujitsu. And mm-hmm. and I studied a number of different styles of Japanese jiu-jitsu. And, you know, a lot of the Japanese jiu-jitsu I, I don't use anymore. You know, I'm like, there's just better stuff to do. But there's a couple moves here and there. And I'm like, this is we're going to keep. This is really good. And let's do this. I'm, I'm curious how much of, of those arts, because especially if it was an MMA art, even weapon MMA, or, you know, that you – that you found, are there still come some moves? You're like, oh, this is this is something we we want to preserve, or or yeah. have you just completely abandoned it and and gone over to the the more you know content, contemporary styles? I, I think I have, um, you know, because at that time that I was not, I hadn't done any BJJ, so BJJ supplanted that idea, you know. Um, right. Not to say that that art didn't have any good stuff but i was just a novice so i probably wasn't able to appreciate it right 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 right. especially especially just you know there's only two people left there's you know part of training is training with the you know i think one of the reasons why jiu-jitsu is so successful over uh, other styles of brazilian jiu-jitsu is so successful over other styles of jiu-jitsu and I, i don't know if you know but in new york there are two styles of jiu-jitsu that were created in New York based on obviously the Japanese tradition, but they were modernized. Moses Powell jiu-jitsu. But, oh, yeah. um, but they're not successful. And I think one is it, this is, a, this is a limited population. You know, the Gracies procreated and taught and created a, a, a community of people that yeah. was very, very large. So you go into dojo and there's not two people. There's, you know, 400. And that's a big yeah. deal. You know, the yeah. critical mass of people all working in the same thing. I, I always yeah. think a style is not just the techniques, but but the tech, the technology and the environment that that style uses. And yes. the, the Gracies created an environment in which to thrive, you know? And I don't think it's any coincidence that some of the people who are really good, like the Mendez brothers, there's two of them, the Meow brothers, there's two of them, mm. the Gracies, you know, there were always two or four or ten of them. I mean, that's even just within a little family. Right. So they always had someone to, you know, do to their work with, yeah. practice their stuff yeah. on and work stuff out. Whereas a lot of Westerners, they haven't got their brother doing it. It's just we're, we're more solo, more individual. Mm. So I think that that really helped. That contributed a lot to the development of the art. Wonderful point. Fantastic point. But the 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 Badramushti guys, it was interesting. That's where I first saw Omo Plata, Rene. Oh. Yeah, I saw Omo Plata there. Which was I didn't appreciate it at the time because I hadn't done BJJ, so I just went, "What the hell?" You know, <laughs> from the bottom, the guy's locking him up with his arm, with his legs, and then he's punching him in the back of the head with his knuckle duster. That's weird, you know. So it was just like that. But anyway, it's further proof that you know, like who invented toast, right? <laughs> <laughs> Now I gotta Google that. <laughs> Who invented toast? I don't know, but you know, you know, it's very interesting because going back to Silat, um, I was I just saw a funeral stelae that um, two, two actually, one was at, um, a person um, choking another person out with a runic choke and doing a body triangle on the on him, and oh, well. and also um, I I traveled to um, to uh, England and Paris recently. And I, when we went to the British Museum, we were looking at all the ancient Greek sculptures, and and a few of them. Guess what I saw? You're gonna laugh when Hill I say hook. it. Inside Hill Hook, fifty fifty. 
Yeah. All 50 yeah. 50 to like a leg entanglement and then the guys entangling the legs and then they're one guy's trying to stab the other and one other one's looking like yeah like a leg lock kind of thing. Right? Awesome. But but it's like whoa wow. and I saw it like three times and knee on the belly everywhere. I mean I could, yeah. I stopped I stopped looking. I'm like okay this is the 40th knee on the belly I've seen. So it's like <laughs> you know it's like it's fascinating but then again you also look at something like the triangle choke which in my research, well, which is, I have to say, it's it's somewhat broad because I, I did a lot of research in Japan in Japanese language, which I speak. I also speak um, uh, historical Japanese, or I read it. I wouldn't say I speak it. And um, and I've, I've done research. It's like, you don't see the triangle choke. The triangle choke in any martial art um, prior to the turn of the century, and Oda Tsunatane was the guy who really did it and you don't see it in ancient Greece. You don't see it in traditional art. So it's interesting how, yeah, there. That is. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's like I have never I'm not saying it didn't exist, but there's no recorded evidence of it ever anywhere, even in the Japanese, you know, uh, traditions. And the ones that say they have it are lying. They're lying That's because you, I can look at the the Mokuroku, you know, the scrolls and all that and they're like it's nowhere to be seen. And I've gone to these historical uh libraries and looked at first-hand sources like nope, there's nothing there. The guy who first did it, who first recorded it, first did it was Oda Tsunatane. And E.J. Harrison was a, a a fighter who who was the first one to start publishing books on the on his, you know, this method of ground fighting. You know, he's one of the original Kosen guys, you know. But um yeah. but uh but you know there's yeah, I agree in principle with that there's nothing new under the sun, but sometimes but there sometimes really is. There is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's, that is kind of weird to me because when you told me that when you said that because to me for example Omar Plata I think the way Omar Plata was probably invented was it's a triangle on the arm, right? Yeah. So, so Oma Plata has been around a long time. So that, Absolutely. And body triangle has been around forever. Yet nobody it's have, did weird it that it. triangle, triangle, Sankaku yeah. isn't, hasn't been, well, there's no evidence of. There's I, no evidence. I saw uh, last year or the year before, I forget, I was in um, the museum near the Acropolis in Greece. And there's a, there's a carving, like a stone relief on the wall of a um, centaur doing an inside heel hook on a human. Did you post that on Facebook? I think I saw you post yeah, it, right? I did. Yeah. yeah I remember that. Yeah. That I saved cool. it. I actually saved it. I, I saved the picture. Inside he'll look yeah, nice. Yeah. <laughs> like the saddle. <laughs> <laughs> Fascinating. Right. And, um, yeah. but, um, but, uh, um, anyway, I, I didn't mean to cut you off on what you were saying before. I apologize. I forget what we're talking about. No, we just, you know, that you went to India and we we're talking Vada Mushri with oh, yeah. the, yeah. Vada Mushri, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I actually got the book. I've got a book. There's only 100 copies ever made, um, and it's called the Mala Purana. And there's a co- there's a book on Bajramushti, and there's only 100 ever ever done. Wow! Yeah, I got one. That's amazing. In my I, library, I'm, I'm a, a bit of a collector of historical uh, documentation um, for martial mm-hmm. arts, mostly in the Japanese tradition, because I speak Japanese and I can I can and read Japanese and I can enter that a little bit more easily. Um, mm. So I love looking at these, you know, historical Japanese books and texts when I can get a hold of them. Um, but oh, yeah. if I could ever see a PDF of that, I would love love to see that as well. Well, uh, uh, two thirds of it or three quarters of it is in Sanskrit, so there's a oh, problem. Okay. Um, <laughs> just a and Google doesn't translate Sanskrit. <laughs> I, have, I have an Indian friend who uh, who trains with us. I'll, I'll I'll put him to work. I'll give free prizes. Give right. it a yeah. crack. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but what what I was lucky because that book was published. I forget somewhere in like in the sixties, 
when England made some rule about books being published at universities during that period, they had to have something like a quarter English preface. So a quarter of the book's written in English. It's cool. That was like an English, I guess, one of the benefits of colonialization. Benefits for us. Benefits for us. Yeah, yeah benefits for us. It's pretty cool. So it's a good book. But anyway, yeah, so that was a good part. It was interesting meeting meeting those two, those two guys. When did you first have your experience with the Brazilian tradition of martial arts? Well, I went to um, America in the mid, I forget, it was like 85, 86, 85, 86. And I was going to, I was doing some training with Gene LaBelle, Benny the Jet, the Jet Center, you know, LA, right? Yeah. Uh, and Jet Center was really big back then too. The Jet Center was was the place to go. Yeah. Um, so I went there and there was a lot of great martial artists training there, Petey Cunningham, Howard Jackson, some really well-known um, wonderful American martial artists, let alone Benny the Jet. Chuck Norris was even hanging around there. Lots of people would go there. It was a bit of a mecca. And and when I was over there, I I wanted I, I'd heard about some Brazilians teaching in Torrance, which of course which of course was Horry and Gracie teaching his garage. So I called him up and I said, Can I ever do a private lesson? He said, Sure, come down. Uh, I said, Do you want in a, oh, this was in Australia before I even went. Right, I said, well, I'm going to come to America. Can I do some training with you? He goes, shorts, private lessons, $100 an hour. And I went, $100? I nearly fell over dead. Like, you've got to be joking, $100 an hour in 1985? I had to sell my house. So, um, so, but anyway, and then I, you want to hear the funnier part of the story. I said, look, can I bring you anything from Australia? Thinking, you know, do you want a boomerang or a pet koala bear for your kid? <laughs> And he says, bring me a, just, no, just bring a kimono. Right. You can see where this is going. Right. That's <laughs> what I bought him. What did you buy a him? A kimono. Okay. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, you mean, you mean he meant he meant a gi and you thought oh, he meant a Japanese kimono. Yes. <laughs> because no one called gis kimonos kimono, Right, then. right, right. Yeah, that's a, that's a funny thing that tripped me up in the beginning too because, of course, I, I'm from Jap- Japan. And actually – in Japan, they don't really call them gis either. They call them dogi, like judo gi. Right, okay, yeah, right. yeah. And and so, although of course I did karate as a kid, so I know what a gi is, but I never heard it referred to as a kimono. Kimono actually doesn't mean kimono, like the formal kimono. Uh, it generally means just like things you wear. Gear. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> just stuff you wear, right? Although obviously you're talking about formal kimono, like it can mean that too. But but uh, it tripped me up when you know when they said kimono, and I'm like, what? Oh, yeah. I see what you mean. <laughs> so so I've, I've gone down the street, yeah. hunted around in Melbourne, found a Japanese clothes store, bought a secondhand kimono because who sells new kimonos? And I took that to America and rock up at his garage and go, here's the thing you wanted from Australia. It seems weird to me, but here it is. <laughs> oh he goes, where's your, where's your kimono? I go, here it is. He goes, no, I mean a gear. I went, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! So, so that was my. I bought five lessons off him Monday to Friday. On the fifth lesson, so for five hundred dollars, he says, "I can't teach you today. I'm going to take my kids to Disneyland." But my cousin is up from Brazil. He's helping me teach my private lessons. He'll teach you. So I rock out there on my fifth lesson on a Friday, and that cousin was Higgin Machado, who was out there working for five pounds, five dollars an hour 
in his garage getting 5% of the fee doing like 50 lessons a week. Um, and uh, so that's how I met Hegan. And uh, he taught me the best lesson of the five lessons that I had. Hegan was into it because he was passionate about it. And yeah. even though he couldn't speak one word of English, his no. passion was oozing out of him trying to, you know, get the ideas across to me. So we instantly hit it off. And then when I, I went home after that to Australia, came back six months later with the intention of doing one more lesson there so I could just ask them, where do I go in Brazil? So I turned up to do that lesson and it was Hegan again. And the first words out of his mouth were, don't train here, you need to go to Brazil. And I said, that's what I wanted to ask. And he says, I'm going Wednesday, come with me. So we became kind of good friends and have been hanging out every, ever since. That's Hegan Machado I'm talking about. Um, some of the most mind-blowing like moments in my career uh, which is, again, nothing like yours, but was Hegan saying, Renee, why don't you think about it like this? I'm like, oh my God, that just, what? You know, like it just changed everything. And literally just offhanded things because he's such a master instructor. He'll say exactly what you need to just get your mind in the right place. And um, he's an amazing guy. He's really amazing. Uh, I'm, I'm, I was my first experience with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, was not with him, although I my first real experience with him, I met Sal Hibera in Japan and, and mm -hmm. rolled with him for a little bit, but that really wasn't a, a, like a teaching experience. My first walking into a jiu-jitsu gym was the, you know, Masha, RCJ Machado Academy and, and you know, on uh, Hawthorne. And, um, yeah. and uh, it was just, yeah, it was like, I'm like, I'm sold. I'm sold, you know? And, uh, mm -hmm. and he was so welcoming too. And that's what I liked about the Machados for me personally was that, you know, I came from a judo background and I thought, oh my God, these guys are going to just destroy me. You know, because it was back then with the, you know, the, the yeah. rivalries and this. And the reason yeah. I, I liked the Machados is because, you know, I, I saw when they went to Japan, uh, um, his brother, Jean Jacques, had a, had a, a super fight with Yuki Nakai in, in, in Jiu Jitsu super fight, right? And they were yeah. like so respectful. And they're like, oh, you know, all martial arts are good. And, you know, we love Dennis Santo. Yeah. I'm like, maybe these guys aren't going to just rape me. And, yeah. You know, now they did with the smile on their face and never hurt me and uh, yeah. and showed me. And they're like, oh, you're good, but you need this and this and this. And it was just such a positive experience. And, you know, I think the Gracie family has kind of changed, you know, especially with the younger generation. They're like, OK, instead of like beating the snot out of people like the Gracie Challenge, why don't we mm. just have a more softer approach? And it goes back to, you know, you get more flies with uh, with sugar than vinegar, you know, yeah. and um so it's interesting, and 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 but I, I treasure my time with the Machado, with Higa Machado. You know, it was fantastic. So, and and you were living yeah. in in Brazil. Um, and how long were you there? I only went a couple of times for a, a month or two at a time, or a couple of months. But because because it wasn't very long after that where the Machados started coming to America. Right. So they all over the. Somewhere between, I'm going to say, 1986 and 1990, they all moved up to LA. And because I connected to them, I didn't have to go to Brazil anymore. I then started going to LA. And that all happened in that, in that, in that period. Hegan's out here next week. And weirdly enough, I'm taking him to India. <laughs> I actually knew that because I saw you post that. But uh, yeah. I think that's, and he, I you know, that's amazing. <laughs> 
And and so for the guys who don't know that you were one of the Dirty Dozen, which is the uh, first non 12 non-Brazilians to um, get their black belts uh, uh, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And um, that, that that must seem I, – I mean, you're such a humble guy, but it must be kind of cool to know that you have that um, that pioneering influence. I think that it – well, of course, at the time, if you think about it, at the time, you don't know you're doing these things, right? Like you don't know. You're just doing – your thing and uh, you don't think that anyone's going to be jumping in. Like normal people aren't going to do this. That's insane. So I had no idea that it was going to become popular. Especially back in the day. I mean, jujitsu was like, you know, second cousin to NHB. And it was like, it was like when I told people that I was interested in NHB and they're like, it was like saying you do porn, you know, it was like a terrible thing. Like my mom's like ashamed of me, you know, <laughs> anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt, but, but yeah, I totally like, I never thought ever in a million years, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu would be as popular as it is now. No, I mean, it's because it came to America. Chuck Norris helped the Machados get there that they kicked it off there along with Horry. And then of course the UFC was the big thing and put it in the public view. But even when the UFC came out in 1992, there were still only one or two academies and it took several years after the UFC before mainstream people started walking into the mats. And then when they walked into the mats, then the word started to spread. So it was quite, it was probably to mid nineties where it started to become public popular. And then maybe, because this was no coincidence that it was at the same time where the internet came out. The emergence yeah. of the internet. Absolutely. I totally believe uh, that, that jiu-jitsu yeah. is a, the first kind of cybernetic, jiu-jitsu and MMA are the yeah. first cybernetic martial arts in that they were assisted yeah. considerably yeah. by technology and, and the, yeah. you know, and, and... The timing. The yeah. timing, yeah, absolutely. But I'd say even, you know, I started Brazilian jiu-jitsu seriously in 2000. And, uh, you know, there was basically... There were two jiu-jitsu schools in all of New York City. You know, like there was ah. uh, the Machado Association and there was Henzo's. And that was it. That was all there was. Now, there's probably like 500. You wow. know, it's like <laughs> I don't even know how many. I mean, it's just unbelievable how many there are. And uh, it's just so completely different. It's great seeing people like Henzo. Because, I mean, when when I was on the mat in Brazil, Henzo was a purple belt. No, and, um, my God. You know, it's funny seeing... These guys now, because they were all, they were all when I, at that time, way back in 1987 or something, they were all in the same room. Well, I can't say all, but, yeah. you know, in the same room, you had five Machado brothers, Hillion Gracie, Henzo Gracie, Hyan Gracie, Half Gracie. They're all, they're just the normal kid. They were just guys in the class. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, all it was the before the family really, really split. Yeah, and I don't think splits the great word. I think okay. I think the right way to say it is they just grew up and they all just went away and they all started doing their own things. That's that's um, probably true. You know. Yeah, like any family, like you you lose yeah, touch right. with the yeah, of course. And it was just, exactly just like any family. You know, the kids grow up and then they leave their homes and then they all got their own places, but they still get together and see each other at Christmas. I think that's what it was like. And you know, and they went to different places. Or at, at the beginning, when the Machados come to America. They all lived in the one house and had the one school. But then after that, they got on their feet. And, of course, they split off, you know, and have another another one got his, his own house and then his own school. And then, you know, kind of like that. And I think that's what's happened everywhere. I mean, Henzo went to New York and Hyen went to, I mean, um, Half went to San Francisco, you know, stuff like that. And it kind of spread. Hillian appeared <laughs> much later on, way down south somewhere. In Florida yeah, he's in Florida. Something. Yeah, Florida, right? 
so so yeah you know it's kind of and there i mean i only know a small portion there's of course many other brazilians that are really great that have come to america and spread everywhere but now and now it's not just that it's now americans you know themselves have Westerners nor non-Brazilians are contributing just as much um, as any Brazilian has ever contributed to the development and spreading of the art. So it's I, not, you know. I know you're friends with Gilbert Melendez and, you know, a person he trains with is Jake Shields. And Jake Shields said something interesting. He's like, I do American jiu-jitsu, but really yeah. there's no jiu-jitsu. There's just jiu-jitsu. And Sanjay Barra said the same thing. He's like, maybe we should stop calling it Brazilian jiu-jitsu and just call it jiu-jitsu. And I, I, I know what they're trying to yeah. say, and I believe that's a cool thing. But the other time, I also know as a practitioner of Japanese other styles of jiu-jitsu that it's very important to make a difference because obviously a yeah. distinction yeah. is important in training. And I also know that uh, there are some people in the Japanese or traditional, I should say traditional jiu-jitsu world, who are mm. disreputable, who took the Japanese part away when Brazilian jiu-jitsu started getting popular oh, yeah. and they said, they yeah. say, I do jiu-jitsu, but no, you don't yeah. do this. It's not the same. You know, um, it's sort of like, um, and somebody, and, and I'm in the judo world too, of course, cause I trained judo for a long time. And there are a lot of judo people who say, well, you know, jiu-jitsu is just judo. Well, that's not really true, but it's like yeah. saying, it's like also saying like boxing. Okay. You know, boxing is a big world, but there's also Philly shell, Philly style, there's, you know, yeah. cronk gym style, you know, there, there's, there's rope, you know, there's different sub styles in boxing. There just is, there is, and that's a fact. And they're not all the same. And, you know, um, and they all have their systems their you know, the rope of dope, this, whatever you want to call it. Right. But yeah. to say that, you know, Muhammad Ali boxed exactly the same way as Mike Tyson is silly. They're yeah. just completely different. You know, okay. Yeah. It's the same world. Of course, the training methods are the same, but I think with jujitsu, it's even larger. The way Japanese jujitsu people train is as in Japan, and I know I trained with them, is very different and, you know, archaic and antiquated and um, not efficient, honestly, um, mm. for the most part, uh, compared to the way Brazilian jiu-jitsu or Gracie jiu-jitsu, you know, uh, or whatever, you know, lineage yeah. of that you want to say is, is trains. And um, there's a difference. There's a difference, you know. Um, so well, names make, make, a, make a difference. But that being said, we're all part of this larger community who contributes to the evolution of fighting arts. And, and for me personally... I, I, I wanted to get your take on this, but I actually am um, a little disappointed with the jiu-jitsu world today. So I really, for me personally, I like identifying with the MMA world because it seems to me a little bit more scientific in that it's results completely 100% results oriented. And, um, and it also is style blind because I really don't want to be a jiu-jitsu guy. I don't want to be a yeah. judo guy. I don't want to be yeah. a C-lot guy or this guy. I want to be the best unarmed combatant that I can be. Right. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And and yes. I, I, you're, you've been in the world a long time, and I'm I'm very critical of what I see. It, I don't know how it is in 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 Brazil, but it's like belt inflation now is unbelievable. So people mm -hmm. are selling kind of belts, and the skill is going down. And people come on the mat and they don't train like they used to. I don't sound like I'm the old guy back in the day. But it just doesn't it doesn't have the same fighting relevance that it used to. And you know, when two yeah. people dive into 50-50 and stay there for five minutes and one guy scores an advantage and then they're like, yeah. oh, and run around like they won, you know, the world I'm like, that's not why I started this art, you know? But so I'm yeah. personally distancing myself from the jiu-jitsu world, first of all, because I've studied many martial arts and I think all of them have something to offer. But second, the direction where that modern jiu-jitsu is taking is not the direction I want to go, you know? Um, 
it reminds me of the, the trajectory of Taekwondo here where when I was younger uh, and my uncle came back from uh, from uh, a service in, in Asia and he had studied Taekwondo in Korea for a long time. And he did, they didn't even call it Taekwondo back then. They, he would study the Muda Kwan. But they were, yeah. you know, bare knuckle throwing down. And of course, the technology is not as high as martial arts today, but they were really, really, really fighting. Yeah. And then you look at Taekwondo today and it's like, you know, six-year-old black belts. You know, uh, you know that's just, it's just a, a trajectory that really disheartens me. And yeah. I see the commercialization here in America. I can't speak for Australia, but here in America, it's it's crazy how low the standards have dropped. And, you know, I remember when a blue belt was a stone cold killer. And now 99% of the blue belts probably would have a tough time in a street fight. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like they probably would. And that's not how it was back in the day. I mean, for mm. at least my experience, you know, and, and that's when I started in 2000, you know. I yeah. mean, I can't even imagine what it was like with you. You know, if you're in the in the room and Henza's a purple belt, I'm sure it was pretty tough. Yeah. I've got a lot to say about that. <laughs> I will be um, quiet completely and listen to you because, you know, you... I'm taking his mic away. Yes, I'll, I'll turn it away. <laughs> <laughs> Get him, Matt. Um, I think that I used to... when I When I started out, I was probably very similar... My 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 way in my segue in to BJJ was probably very similar to you, in that I was a martial artist looking to be more effective in fights, and there was a hole in my development, um, meaning groundwork. And, and weirdly enough, the fights that I a lot of fights that I got into, I won on the ground with a little freestyle wrestling. I you know I kick and punch, and if it wasn't going well, double leg takedown, mount punch, punch, punch. And, and and because I won a significant amount of fights like that, that attracted me to BJJ. And then I realized how bad I was at groundwork. It, it, it still, I was still effective, really effective, even with how bad I was. So that attracted me to want to learn more BJJ. And then I'd be, but I was still always, right up until when I got my black belt in BJJ, I was, I had to run everything that I learned through the, will this work in a fight filter? And if the answer was, no, this is not really great for a fight, you know, um, then I wouldn't pay much attention to it. And if it was really good in a fight, I, you know, knee ride and stuff, I go, this is awesome. I'll do it. Right. That's exactly so, me. <laughs> okay. Now, but, but, but having said that, I've changed my view over the last 10 years. Um, so because, because if you go down that road, this is my view, right? If you go down that road where everything has to be about, functionality and working in a fight, then it comes up, it raises some interesting questions. I do that for, let's say, that's fine for two years. That's fine for five years. If I'm practicing for 30 years, 40 years, my whole life, and everything has to be run through the does it work in a fight filter, but I'm not getting into fights. I'm not out there getting into fights to need all that training. And it could be argued that I've had many more injuries on the mat than I would have ever had in a normal street fight. Mm. So I've got to find some better reason to train than just self-defense. I do not train for self-defense anymore. I'm not interested in self I won't say I'm not interested in self-defense. I have to be interested to the point where I provide the people that are coming to me with that in mind, I have to be able to, 
I have a duty of care to provide them with what they're asking for. So I say this, self-defense will get you there. It will not keep you there. No one, I'm not going to say no one, but very few people can are still training for pure self-defense 40 years down the track. So I think the efficacy of BJJ as in, in terms of fighting will get you there. It'll get you started. But what keeps you there 20 years later is the complexity and the never-ending evolution of the complexity of the art is not driven by self-defense. It's driven by, you know, my counter to your counter to my counter yeah. to your counter to making me come up with a new counter. So that, And that's got nothing to do with self-defense. Yeah. So I'm up for this. I'm a little bit more of the view now, whatever keeps you on the mat is good. And if that's Berimbolo, then fine. And if it's Ratguard, then fine. It's whatever keeps you on the mat. And not so much 20 years ago, I would have answered this question differently. No, it's got to be effective in fighting. So you see how I've changed in my view. I, you know, 100% respect everything you said. And you are someone I look up to and a true master. Um, I will say that I do see it differently because it, one, um, uh, I, I agree with that because, you know, I see that in MMA because, you know, you're right. I mean, self-defense is is kind of a, a small portion of what I do, but I do is mixed martial art effectiveness. But what I see is, um, you said duty of care. And what I see is a lot of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practitioners unable to differentiate what works in a fight and what doesn't. And that, oh, that oh, troubles and I, me. Rene, I'm talking about me. Right. Right. I'm not talking about other people. Right, right, right. Oh, no, and no you, judgment. It's, it's, absolutely. I mean, right. Yeah. Right. If you, if you had a frame the question, what do I think of other people, you know, teaching some worm guard six months into a beginner, I'd go, what are you doing? Yes. I mean, that, right. So, exactly. Um, that, that, that's a different question. Yeah. And I like right, the complexity, the, the interaction of MMA, because for me, and I totally agree with what you're saying, because, you know, after a while, you know, headlock defense gets kind of boring, you know? Um, but if you are, like, I like to train in always a combat jujitsu modality. So whenever we roll, we're always integrating slaps. So mm -hmm. it's still, there's the problem solving, which is what I love about it. But it integrates a lot of the the concepts of Bruce Lee where it's like, let's get rid of the, the walls between the styles. And, yep. okay, we start striking. We go to takedowns. We go yep. to ground. And we go back up. And we transition all the way through. And you're counter. I counter you. And I, I, that is what makes fascinates me and how we can do that more efficiently for me my quest is how we can make everything much more efficient and effective for the least athletic individual to be functional and i'm constantly trying to refine what i do to take someone who's very small and or very uncoordinated and make them you know safe and also maybe who knows maybe go into the cage someday you know um, that that's for me. And again, uh, everybody has to find their way, you know? Well, well, everyone does. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and people come into martial arts, BJJ or any other martial arts from a hundred different points of view, right? Some of them are coming just for socialization. Some of them are coming to, to, um, you know, learn self-defense. Other ones are coming because they're sick of the gym and they used to want to do something else. And, and half of them don't even know why they're doing it. Um, so, I think it doesn't really matter like 
how people get in there. And that's why I think there's more, there's got to be more than one way because uh, you're casting a wider net to drag people in there who would not ordinarily have chosen that way. So I think, and then eventually you get, you know, even with the worst BJJ scores, eventually they're going to get become okay just by the virtue of the fact that they're turning up. See, see no one, I'll give you an example. You've probably heard of Jeff Thompson. In yes, of course. UK. Yeah, in UK. The so I was talking to Jeff Thompson, talked to him quite a few times. I go over and teach a bunch of seminars every year in the UK. And Jeff and a lot of his friends would come along to some of my early seminars who've done a lot of bouncing and had several thousand fights on the doors, like guys like Bob, um, guys like, um, what's his name? Steve Anderson. Is his name? Steve Anderson. I keep getting mixed up. Bob Anderson's the American wrestler. Yeah. Steve Steve Anderson. I'm not familiar with him. And he, Anyway, the guys have had thousands of fights, um, literally. Um, anyway, they he, and, and Jeff Jeff Thompson's all about. Now I'm I'm doing him a disservice because you can never distill someone's life's work down into three sentences. But it's kind of like this: he puts up a fence, which I'm sure you know with the hands. Fence up, fence. Asks a mind engaging question to slow his uh, opponent's reactions down, and then hits him with a right hook. Job done. So, fence. Question, smack them first, right? Now, that is a great strategy. And there's no doubt that that is really effective in fights. But here's my, this was my point to Jeff on several occasions. Where's all your students? Mm. They don't, they're not there. And I'll tell you why. (laughs) Because people can only do that shit for about a week and they're bored senseless. Irrespective of how effective it is. Yeah. Now, here's the kicker. It, if they're not turning up because they're bored, it could be argued that Tai Chi is more effective because they are turning up. Right, 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 right. Over the run. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. And also, just to – You've got to get people on the mat. Yeah. Right? You, if, you, if, it's, if it's so hardcore, effectiveness is meaningless because they're not turning up. So I, I know I'm, I sound like I'm batting for the other team here, you know, and I'm, and I'm not. I mean, because, you know, I think my standards are good. Um, and, and, you know, it takes, it takes 10 years to get a black belt and, you know, two years to get a blue belt. And I'm asking a lot of my students and I have a core program where they've got to put gloves on and they've got to square away the self-defense at the start before they get a blue belt. Um, but, but at the same time, I also get the other side of it. People need to be turning up and, and it, so in some ways, hey, if people are turning up, you know what? You're not doing a bad job. So I'm a little bit less hardcore than what I used to be yeah. with regard to that whole. No, concept. but you know, it's funny you should say that because also if you're talking self-preservation, the mm-hmm. number one killer of people today is heart disease and stroke. Oh, so yeah. honestly, you're that, much yeah. much less likely to die of, a, of, a, of someone hurting you then you are of heart disease. So, you know, turn up and get some exercise. I, I completely agree with that. But I also see my response to that. I have a lot of, like, and I know you did work with the military people. I have a lot of law enforcement people. And New York, you know, frankly, it's not safer than it used to be, but it's not safe. And, you know, a lot of my students have involved in self-defense altercations. Uh, and a lot of them want to go in the cage. So, you know, I, I for me personally, my passion is yeah, always to, yeah. is, is to service the people interested in functionality, and yes. and um, and what what I what bothers me is when people do things like worm guard 
but then say they're doing self-defense. No, you know, like Marcel Garcia is down the street and who I love and trained under and have nothing but respect for. And he says on his shirt, sport jujitsu. And he does not make any bones about it. He, he's mm. like, hey, you know, I'm going to butt scoot. I'm going to play X guard and I'm going to yep. arm drag you. And that's great. And, you know, um, he's not doesn't say anywhere MMA or anything like yeah. that, you know, and if people enjoy that, fantastic. And Marcel is a man of integrity and a great mm. guy. And he has never done any sort of false advertising or anything like that. He just does his thing and just yeah. I have so much respect for him. But, yeah, don't think butt scooting is going to help you. And, you know, the problem is I look at Jacare and Jacare was fighting Yoel Romero and I talk about this and he sat up to do the kind of, you know, arm drag thing and he's in sitting guard and Jacare looks at him and is like, I mean, Yoel Romero looks at Jacare and he's like, really? And he just goes, bonk! And elbows <laughs> him so hard in the face and you can see it and Jacare said after an interview that he had so much trauma from that hit that he couldn't remember what happened in the fight afterwards and for a week he was like not clear. So obviously mm. that move is not functional, but you know, for me, you do what you do. And if you're, mm. if you're going to do that all the time, then make sure you don't go in an MMA ring. You know, like yeah. you should not be doing that. And if you want to yeah. do something else, you know, more power to, you know, like my mom does Tai Chi. I'm not yeah. like, you know, mom, you shouldn't do Tai Chi because you know, it doesn't work in a cage. No, but you know, it, it's silly. Like it, it helps her lower blood pressure and she has yeah. fun and, and she has community and, and it's wonderful. I mean, it's absolutely wonderful. And I have another friend who is very much in, uh, she's half Japanese and she's very much in the traditional Japanese martial arts world. And it's as a cultural connection to her Japanese yeah. side. And that is fantastic. And she has nothing, wants nothing to do with fighting. She wants to just yeah. have this cultural, great, as long as we're being square on, Clear, our, yeah. on our marketing. That's and all I I'm saying. It's you know actually I mean? in, see, when people, I think one of, the, uh, one of the factors here is that when people are trying to make their uh, living out of martial arts and they're starting out, they're desperate. Um, you know, they can't pay the bills. Um, they are desperate and, you know, their wife's yelling at them <laughs> to get a real job, but they, they're, they're unqualified to get a real job because they can't fucking do anything else. So, um, <laughs> so, so that's who's, unfortunately, that's who, that's, people are trying to monetize their passion because that's their only way out, right? They see that. Now, the problem with that is then their instinct says more students is better. So I'll pretend that no matter what you want, I can give it to you. So they try to be all things to all people. Now, of course, anyone who knows anything about business, I think one of the things is that's not true. You cannot be all things to all people. You've got to identify very, very clearly who you are and then you market to the people who want to be a part of that. And you'll get more people that way than trying to be all things to everyone. And so that's part of the problem. People trying to be all things to everyone and they're teaching what they do. Let's say in this instance, it's sport jujitsu, but they're trying to, someone says, I want to, I want to go in MMA. They go, yep, you're in the right spot. Someone else comes and says, I want to learn self-defense. They go, yep, you're in the right spot because they need to pay the bills. Whereas when you don't need to pay the bills or, or that's not your focus, which for me, it's never been. I don't believe that you monetize your passion. I think your passion monetizes you. Um, but uh, when you're clear on what you want, then it's really easy because then you're totally honest. This is who I am. I'm staying in my lane. 
who out there wants to be part of this? And you'll actually attract them. Yeah. That's how it, that's Absolutely. What I and I, I, um, I think what we're talking here is also uh, something is integrity. And I know you quote stoicism all the time and you had just had a post recently on this, which is, uh, you know, I thought it was a phenomenal post, but we're talking about the concept of integrity. But for me, mm. there's integrity is not integrity when you're not challenged. It's like mm. when mm-hmm. it's, it's not when it's not integrity, when it's easy, when you say the right thing, when it's easy to say, it's like when it's hard to say the right thing, you're going to eat a, 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 you know, eat a hurt, you know, something is going to, you know, you're going to eat it by doing the right thing. That's integrity. And, um, but you know, as martial artists, I, I, you know, my Academy is a little bit more Japanesey, um, because of course I lived there for so many years, but the, the tradition of the, the Japanese code is important to me. And it starts mm-hmm. and ends with courtesy and also mm-hmm. integrity. And we got to say, this is it. You know, this is, that's why I always say I never, anybody says I created the record, I correct them right away because that's called lying. It's not integrity. You know, I'm not going to take credit for something I didn't do. I didn't create it. I just expanded it. And hey, I did these other things too. But, you know, also anytime I teach a technique, I say, I got this technique from this guy and this is not mine. And, and actually this is this. And I got this from here. And, uh, because that's that's just the right way to do it, and um, and uh, because that's the way that's the way I think as martial artists we should conduct ourselves. You know, to to me, of course, there's a self defense element in that, but you know, it's a path of self betterment, and you cannot better yourself when you are false to yourself and false to others. You have mm. to be above board and walk walk with integrity. You know, and um, and that's that's just kind of it's like really important to me, and I have lost a lot of respect for a lot of people because I felt that they they did things that besmirched you know the path yeah. you know, and like you know we talked about it too, like people do seminars and then there's a little hanky panky thing, and you know like My disgusting. God. Don't start. You know what I'm talking about, though. You know we're we're on the same page here. You know. I know exactly. Yeah, yeah. We so hear more about this story. <laughs> anyway, I'll be quiet because Matt is like, I get the uh, ratings up. Yeah, he, let's hear these <laughs> seminar stories. Well, <laughs> hanky panky. I had one question for you. Uh, we've we've heard a lot about your uh, your. Well, we actually haven't heard that much about your life story, and I feel like there's probably thousands of stories in the bank because yeah. you've had. You've had an amazing life just from the little we've we've learned about so far. Uh, who's going to play you in your in the movie about your life? Is it Russell Crowe? Is he top billing? <laughs> Don't be silly. Don't be silly. You you you're doing an autobiography right now, currently, right? Pardon your, your autobiography. Are you working on that? No, I've done it. You've done yeah, it. Yeah, rogue, rogue, uh, rogue martial Well, there's still more of your life coming. Is there more more journals and more entries coming? There is. Uh, I probably there's probably one more. Um, yeah, because my, you know, the thing is, we constantly change. I was talking to this to, to a couple of black belts this morning, talking about this subject. You can look at a look at something, right? Like a move when I like omoplata, right, or anything, anything that we learn as human beings. So you, you you can look at someone who's been around a long time, and you say, do you know this Peter music, or do you understand this author, or do you know that omoplata move? And then you who have been around for a while say, yeah, I know who that is. But the person that saw that thing 10 years ago is not the same person that you are right now. You're a different person right now than you were even a year ago. 
So the person that's right now should have another look at that painting, at that bit of poetry, at that omoplata, because you might see it in a different light now. So that's really important um, in jiu-jitsu, but also in life. We're constantly evolving. So all the thoughts that I had on the various subjects and the lessons that I learned over the last, you know, 60-something years of my life, and I've written those in those books, I've I've changed my view on – I'm not changed my view, but I've deepened my view and uh, fleshed out my views on a lot of things in the last five or ten years. Hmm. So, yeah, I, I would maybe talk about every subject that I would talk about ten years ago. I talk about it in a different way now. But so would you and so would anyone who's living a life. You know, it's funny. I, again, I don't know how it is in Australia, but in, in America it's sort of like when you have one opinion, particularly in the political realm, when you have one opinion – and then like five years later, you say something, well, I disagree with what I did back then. You're like, oh, you're wishy-washy. Yeah, you're flip-flopper. You're flip-flopper. No, Probably. it just, yeah, mm. I mean, that's life. That's, you it's should growing. grow from that. You know, if, of you, <laughs> if you talk to me in 1994 and you ask me, is Brazilian jiu-jitsu and judo the same thing? I'd be like, of course they're the same. Of course they're the same, you know, because I was a judo guy. I'm like, they're the same, these Gracies. Why are they making? And I'm like, <laughs> now I'd be like, oh, God, you know, this. <laughs> yeah. So, you, you, you know, you have to evolve. Martial arts have to evolve, and you have to evolve as a person. If you're not evolving, then there's something wrong with your quest in life and yeah. your intellectual, and just... your critical thinking. Well, your perspective. Yeah. Your, your perspective is, in theory, different every day because you're one day older and one day smarter and you've had some conversations that you hadn't had prior to last night, you know, so you, your mind is elastic and it should be changing. And therefore, if you, your view of something the next day, even if it's just looking at a tree or looking at something, it doesn't matter. It's that view is influenced by your past and your past has changed in the last 24 hours. So in theory, when you look at it, your view should change slightly, might be very imperceptible, but um, you know, it, it yeah, you use unique every day. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to just to take a big V in topic, one of the things I want to talk about, and you you really uh, inspired me because um, I was uh, bullied as a kid, and that was actually my segue into martial arts. And uh, you know, uh, it was something where I felt people really robbed me of my self esteem. It mm -hmm. was um, this is not a nice experience, and. Um, you had something to say about that, and you c created this uh, advice for for parents to mm -hmm. to uh, you know talk to school administrators and people about that. And I, I thought it was just just spot on. And I actually shared it with someone with a parent, um, mm -hmm. and it was it was very helpful. So uh, one of the reasons why right. I wanted to have you on was because, I, I, and it's very personal for me too, because you know I am very when I hear about kids being bullied, my blood boils. Um, trigger. Trigger. trigger yeah, exactly. <laughs> Disassociation. You're I'm such a snowflake, around. Renee. I'm a <laughs> That's a snowflake warning, snowflake warning. <laughs> uh, anyway, but. Um, Sorry to bully, bully you, Renee. I apologize. I'm, I'm you know, I'm just going to crawl into a corner and cry. <laughs> Me and my snowflake self. Um, but, but uh, you know, can, can I just be quiet again? And John, can you, can you talk about how you approach that issue? Well, I, I, I and I, you are the same. I, I got into martial arts probably because of that same idea. When I was 13, 14, there was this one bully, and I wasn't one fight. It must have been 20. You know, like, 
and um, the same kid, and eventually I won. I lost the first 19, but then my dad said, double leg, takedown, mount, punch him till he stops moving, and it worked. Um, so I, I kind of guessed that some part of me, you know, needed to overcompensate because my self-esteem was smashed. So I get it. Um, now, I have to say that I don't teach kids. My wife t- t- teaches the kids, so she teaches the kids' classes at my school. Uh, I don't. I only teach the adult classes. So we've had, you know, quite a f- number of parents, like four or five in recent memory, that their kid has defended themselves at school using, you know, something that they've learnt with us, and the, the the parents have been called in and the kids been punished. So the latest instance of that, I mean, it's happened to my child. My kid was Felix. You know, to happen to Felix. It happened. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for knowing his name. I, I like appreciate that. Um, Felix, it happened to my son, Felix, uh, who's little for his size, but um, that, you know, he, he's little, but he's ferocious. <laughs> um, uh, so he's been bullied by some kids. The kids, you know, everyone knew. Oh, I'm so sorry arts, to hear so that. That's terrible. They they pushed kids onto him, but then, he, you know, when he, he just slammed him and <laughs> he got into trouble. Um, and then I get called into the principal's office now when it's your kid i don't care because i didn't have to think about it too much because i don't need to argue like why am i doing it? your kid can't fight we have a zero tolerance for fighting and i said well i also have a zero tolerance for fighting we have the same policy um and if someone's lays hands on my kid hey he's got my permission to head buddy him into tomorrow um what and they, they went off at me and they they said to him you've got time off um you got a day off, and I argued for uh, a week off because we need to do more training. Uh, <laughs> so, so, and go to the movies, and we need to go to the movies um, to see Guardians of the Galaxy. And, and, and you know, we've got things to do. So, could I just have more time away from this ridiculous playground? Um, so, anyway, that was my point. But that, that's not—you can't be like that. So, so. So I didn't think much about it, right, until there was a little girl. There was a girl, she's only 12 years old, three guys, smashed her against the locker. Three guys, 12-year-old girl, pushed her against the locker. She pushed him back, stand back, stand back. The guys grabbed her again. Well, one of the guys, he's, she's got a Sotagari knee ride armbar. <laughs> oh, wow. And, yeah, and he was, they're, they're bigger than her. Then the other guy comes in. She goes, double leg, mount, slap. Um, now she's been, and then the third one kind of backed off because he doesn't want to get embarrassed mm-hmm. by a girl beating him up. So now, I, and then that girl's parents were called into the office and they were distraught that she was being punished, right, for, for her actions. And so they've asked me for help and that precipitated, that got me going. And, and I spent a weekend on, um, you know, formulating my arguments for that situation, meaning because here's what happens. The school principal is used to, used to having this argument with parents, calling them in, sitting them down, and giving them a lecture about how they have a zero tolerance for fighting, right? A school principal's used to that argument. And out here she goes and lays out his little arguments. But the parents not used to doing that argument. The parents are busy going about their lives. You know, it may never happen to them. So in a way, I don't like that unbalance, Renee, if you know what I mean. The, Absolutely. The school, princi- 
He knows about this fight. He already got his arguments prepared. He calls up the parent out of the blue and tells them to come into the office. In a way, that's bullying in and of itself. So I started to get a bit- No, it's funny because it's a self-defense paradigm. It's also like you're walking into their den. You know, like you have to- You you know that you have if you're unprepared for the criminal's den you know you're you're unprepared and not just a criminal you're- but that's the whole setting the stage is what I talk about in self defense the the criminal wants to set the the parameters of their interaction you cannot let that happen yeah right so so that that was the reason I I thought well I'm going to give this person you know some 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 ammunition if you like and so I started to you know. Um, just formulate my thoughts. I hadn't done it prior to that, but that's part of what I like about writing. I don't really write for any other people. I write to, you know, uh, uh, crystallize my own thinking, right? In writing it down, it just cements the idea in my head. So um, I did that. And then I thought, well, I may as well keep going <laughs> and, you know, make some good little cartoony type memes about it because there are a lot of um, parents that are called in that don't speak English that well. Maybe English is their second language. So they struggle to see all the arguments and keep them afloat in their head under pressure. So I just made a couple of little, a cheat card, a few little cheat cards um, that, that you can see in five seconds. Oh, right, that's my argument. And then so they, to arm them with those things. So I've got a few basic arguments. Um, the, the, I don't know what it's like in America, but over here they've got this ridiculous thing, and it's called a zero. Same thing. It's exactly tolerance the same. for fighting. It's ridiculous. It's exactly. So the first same. of all, zero tolerance for fighting. I'm in agreement um, with their policy. It's just that I had the same policy, and 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 our children should have the same policy. They all the children should have a zero tolerance for, for fighting policy. So what the school's not doing is they're not making a very clear distinction that needs to be made. They're, 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 right, they're saying zero tolerance for fighting, but they cannot say zero tolerance for self-defense. That is against human rights, and in Australia it's against state law. It, it, state law, it flies in the face of state law. We, every single human has a right to defend themselves. I mean, I'm talking now you know, philosophically or ethically, but it's actually in the legislation. So it's probably in American legislation as well. So I don't care what the school policy is. My policy of self-defense and my um, right to defend myself when someone lays hands on overrides your school policy. And that's the basic thrust of what I was trying to say to these parents. It doesn't matter what the school policy is. Your right to defend, your child's right to defend themselves overrides it. And if you took them to court, they would lose. So you're not going to take them to court, but threaten to take them to court. Let's, I'm confused about this issue. Let's see what the law says about this. My solicitor says, could you please put that in writing, please? And you watch the, you watch the principles backpedal then. Because the, the assault is, is an emergent event, right? So when a child's assaulted, it's happened just out of the blue. There's no time to call a teacher because the teachers say, why don't you call the teacher? What? Why don't they call their martial arts coach when they're being assaulted in the Bronx? Because it's an emergent event. It's emergency happening now. There is no time, right? And the bottom line is we all have a legal and intrinsic human right to be able to defend ourselves from physical violence. 
Absolutely. And would the teacher follow his own rule? Imagine that. What if someone breaks into his house at nighttime, comes up and assaults his wife? What's he going to do? Call the cops or is he going to act? So it's just ridiculous, um, this whole idea of zero tolerance for fighting. No, zero tolerance for bullying, I agree. Zero tolerance for fighting, no, I do not agree with that. Yeah. Everyone has a right to defend themselves. What I liked is how you reframed the argument. It's like, why did you fail to create a safe space for my child? Why did yeah, my well, child have to resort to self-defense? So you failed in your, in your role as a, a, a caretaker. So you failed. So now yes. you're putting it on my child? No. You, as a yeah. caretaker, failed, and your legal, your legal responsibility is to provide care and safety for my child when I am not there. And if you have yeah. not, then, hey, that's, your, that's on you, right? Yes. I loved how you reframed that. Well, the schools do have, at least in Australia, they have a duty of care to protect our children from physical assault while on their premises. So that's why, why have you neglected to take appropriate action? You know, why does my son or daughter need to defend themselves? Because this raises certain legal questions. And my solicitor or lawyer has asked me to ask you that question because they need to know why you haven't been able to do that. You've just got to put the back because they're bullies. They sit there going, blah, blah, blah. And no, we need to put those things back on them. And so I need you to provide me with a reason why you did not provide it as your duty of care, why do you did not protect my child, you know? And um, then they'll backpedal. That's, that, that's, that's the reaction that we've, we've had here. They backpedal. That is, that uh, is wonderful. And, you know, I, um, I, I think, you know, if you look at depression, you look at self-esteem issues, you look at all these things, a lot of this is traces back to bullying. And um, unfortunately, yeah. bullying is a disease in every, everywhere. And, and it's kind of tolerated. And what I really hate is like the, oh, boys will be boys kind of, kind of argument. No. Mm. You know, it, it's a pernicious, horrible thing that last, mm. has lasting effects. I have so many students who, who still have scars. And, you know, you want to say, why, what keeps me in the martial arts and what keeps us in the arts? A lot of my schools, and I was talking to one of my students today, and, you know, he was racially bullied for a long mm -hmm. time because he's not, not white and he lived in a pr predominantly white area. Racially mm -hmm. bullied, taunted, and, and he has some inner demons to exercise, you know, and, yeah. and, it, and he's an adult now, but it's still, it's like there's something in you and, you know, you, you have to, it, it, it stayed when you're, when you have these formative years, they say in, in psychological developed child development, you know, your formative years are like, you know, two to four and then, and then there's a little edge and then it's like five to nine or five to 11. And then mm. these instances, these, these things help shape you for the rest of your life. And, yeah. and so if you're scarred at those moments, you carry those scars and, you know, it's a very personal thing for me. Um, you know, but I, I also have a lot of students who who carry those scars. And, you know, it's just mm. it's terrible that that somehow, you know, the 60s and I'm a very liberal guy, but the 60s like, oh, you know, let's say no to war and violence and this and that. Yeah. OK, that's fine. I get that. You know, but at the same time, not all violence is bad. Violence in the service of self-preservation is a human right. And that yeah. that goes from the mm. moment you're born, and and the against you know the 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 violence of uh, 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 organizational violence where you know some a teacher does something or 
or in this case in New York, sometimes people in the administration or churches, whatever, do something and everybody covers it up. You know, I don't want to go too into that, but you know, like everybody stands now, now that's organizational violence. You, You were victimized. And then suddenly this wall of protection from the organization comes. And yeah. that is a, another type of, of scarring because you have no you have no release. You know, you're like yeah. somehow you're in the wrong. You were victimized and now you're not listened to as a person. When I was bullied, I was bullied. I was actually going to a Catholic school and uh and I was bullied mm-hmm. and um and you know, oh it didn't happen. You know, oh, you know, whatever. So I was I was very lucky and my parents eventually took me out of that school. But uh but you know, it was um not a not a fun experience, which I, I reflect on even now. You know, it's just it was it's terrible. So I just want to thank you for that uh for that logical and very, very uh step by step approach for parents. And um I, I actually downloaded all those little cue cards that you did, but uh so okay. if, if we can, you know, um uh make it available to anybody on your website or something like that, is that something you have? Um, available well, or something? Uh... Just as a, I've got it just as a JPEG. Oh, 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 you've got it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you put it on Facebook, and I downloaded a few of them. Yeah, you know yeah. the one that says like, how to build a cowering and subservient human being. Set a policy yeah. in place whereby there's no distinction between physical assault and self defense. Make yeah. it wrong to stand up. Um, stuff like that. Yeah. Anyway, that yeah. was wonderful. So. See- the simplest thing for people to remember, like if all this is too much, is you've just got to ask the school principal one thing. Are they saying it's against their policy for students to defend themselves? Make them answer that question. Because if they say yes, <laughs> every lawyer is going to start right. rubbing their hands together. Yeah. Um, right? Yeah, no, that's that's great advice. Um I guess um, I, I really want to thank you for all, all you shared there, but I want to ask, you know, we kind of like uh, Matt alluded to this. Let's get one juicy story from the life of John Will. <laughs> one, one cool story from the, from the, from John Will's uh, years and years of martial arts uh, uh, adventures. There's lots. I don't know. Name a country. What topic? Um, <laughs> Name a country topic. Okay. Uh, challenge match. Challenge match. Okay, so in um, let's see, there's a few there. We can pick one. Okay, uh, I'll I'll give you a funny one. This was a funny one. Uh, I was teaching, doing a little bit of work for because there's been martial arts challenging matches way back prior to the UFC, which were funny. Lots of them in LA people coming in and we're just choking them out and breaking their arms and stuff. Oh, that was at, at but, Higgins um, or, or? Pardon? Was that at Higgins? Yes. Oh. There was an endless, there was an endless line of them. Really? In, but prior to the UFC, you understand prior yeah. to the UFC, no one knew. So they were just rocking up every Friday night. Like Jean LaBelle would often bring some in um, and it would be funny. But you know, the one I'll tell you about is, um, I was teaching uh, Victoria when I was very started teaching Victorian a special operations group, state like we call SWAT, like SWAT, SWAT team. And there was a bunch of guys coming there for to do that. There was like the team was twenty four guys in our state SWAT team, so they're all pretty highly trained and they're all consider themselves to be hard and fighters. And they're all getting changed to do some training. And I walk past the change room and I hear one of them say, "That guy." That little guy, 
I could beat the snot out of him. I heard this guy. <laughs> so they come out on the mat and I go, I need a volunteer. Um, we're going to do cuffing, handcuffing non-compliant people. So I go, um, you, and I pick this guy. So he goes, what do we, what do you want me to do? I go, I don't want you to do anything. I want you to try to stop me from cuffing you. And he says, with what cuffs? And I go, those ones that you've got in your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, what? And I go, yeah, ready? He goes, no. And I double leg, take down, mounted him, slapped him, turned over, back choked him good. He went out, pulled out his cuffs, cuffed him up while he's unconscious, dragged him off the mat and into the corner. <laughs> so <laughs> then I left him there for the entirety of the class. No! He's, he was, he, everyone was laughing. They were all laughing because he must have been that way. Um, yeah, so he sat there in the corner. He woke up on his belly down, wondering where he was with his hands cuppy on his back, wiggling like a worm, finally got himself around sitting on his butt, yelling out, blah, 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 and I ignored him and continued to teach the whole class for an hour on uh, cuffing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that oh, that on, is awesome. The here's, here's the good part. The next day I come back for another session, right, because I was teaching them all week. I walk up the stairs into their training area. I walk up and he is there pointing a Sig Sawyer 9mm gun at me, which is loaded with FX rounds. For those who don't know what FX rounds is, it's, little, it's like a normal 9mm round, except that instead of a ball of lead or copper or whatever it is, it's a tiny little ball of Teflon with paint inside. But it's much worse than paintball. Like if you shot someone at two meters, they will bleed. So it's pretty hardcore. He unloaded his entire clip at me. 15 shots, bang, 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 and I'm ducking and running. Like he hit me half a dozen times. And, man, I had black bruises the size of apricots for weeks after that. <laughs> he, got into, he got into a lot of trouble for doing that. You're not supposed to shoot civilians. <laughs> yeah, so. so he just he just ambushed you he totally ambushed me i come up the stairs and he was there going bang 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 so he was really pissed off about the previous day <laughs> oh man well you know that's that's still funny yeah. <laughs> can we have you call it's in fun. once a week and just give us one story yeah yeah can, okay i know it's late sure. but like, i have to matt you gotta can we have one more story too this is awesome matt what you're country, you're asking something <laughs> Uh, I want to know something that happened off the mat. It's like when you're traveling around, um, you've been everywhere. I could just throw a dart at a board and probably hit some country. You've been okay. to it. Off the mat. What, what about, about what? You ever got any is? legal yeah. trouble? Like you've been in trouble with the law in another country? <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> can you not admit to it? Um, I can admit to, I have the book, Malapurana, rare book. Put it this way: the Indian State Reference Library no longer has their coffee. <laughs> um, allegedly, um, allegedly. <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for that <laughs> caveat there. Oh, yeah. What? What else? There was. There was. 
I'll tell you something funny. I was just caught speeding in um, California, right, a long time ago, um, and I got a ticket, which allegedly I threw away because why would I pay it? I live in another country. But apparently they track you on this shit. And what they do is um, it goes to warrant. So if they've caught me speeding, the number plate of the car that you're driving, um, it goes to warrant if you don't pay the fine. And um, they don't, in America, this probably everyone knows over there, but in Australia, this is weird to us. They don't, if, you, if, you're, if you've gone to warrant and there's a warrant for your arrest, there is no distinction made between a murderer and a traffic violation, mm. right? All they know, the police officer knows, is this person's a warrant. So it's like out of the, out of the car, lay on the ground, spread your hands, gun pointed at your head. So the car I was driving was David Meyer's car. <laughs> oh, no. David Meyer is also an incredibly famous uh, jiu-jitsu fighter who I've had the pleasure to train with. Um, they're very good so friends, for the too. Ne- for the next several years, two or three times he was pulled over, <laughs> made to lay on the ground, spread-eagled, cuffed. <laughs> oh my god that's terrible. until they worked out that he was david meyer and not john will forcing him to eventually change his number plates oh <laughs> are you guys still friends or we're best friends uh, wow. and david is like the nicest he's a vegan yes. he's a nice he's, he runs this like pet um you know like a, 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 a you know adopt uh, adopt a pet you know save your mm-hmm. rescue pet thing he's the most like the nicest saint in the world you've ever met it's it's saint david it's, saint, it's opposite to me you know um, saint, saint so david funny. but he's got the punishment i've i've yet to be caught <laughs> okay I'm that's hilarious i'm on the lamb <laughs> Oh, man. So he changed his plates because of that. That's funny. He did. The ticket's he still not to. paid. No. <laughs> <laughs> California's still looking for you. Okay, well, yeah, anyway. but I think I think it's 25 years old, so I think sure. there might be like a... Statute of limitations. Like, yeah, yeah, where they go, you know what, just wipe this one out. Don't, maybe. Don't maybe let him not. borrow your car, Renee. I don't have a car. No. Right. <laughs> Do not. <laughs> <laughs> And besides, they drive on the other side of the road in Australia, right? You guys drive opposite of us, right? Yeah. And the toilets yes, flush the opposite dude. way, right? Is that true? Everything. No, that's the not toilet not. goes down the wrong way, <laughs> and we drive on the side of the road. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't, you know. Actually, I'd always wanted to visit uh, New Zealand and Australia, so hum, so ho- hopefully someday my wife and I can visit and uh, we can all train together, you know. Nice, and yeah. uh, and I can drive your car and maybe you know do something. <laughs> <laughs> maybe get a, a speeding ticket. <laughs> I'm sure they're not so militant here, though. It's a bit yeah. weird over there. Um, thank you so much for such an awesome uh, podcast, and and it's just uh, I, I, you know, I'm I, I'm a super fan of yours. I really am. I I, um, I don't know really realize, but you know, we met once long ago when I was a dumb white belt. You were on the other side of the room with with uh, I think it was. Um, uh, Bob Bass and a couple other guys. I think it was Bob Bass. You know, it was like the, the old school guys. And I was like, wow, those yeah. are the cool guys over there with Hegan. Mm-hmm. And I'm just a white belt. And I was like, wow, these guys are so cool. And then, you know, out of the blue, you you messaged me, you know, a while ago and said, oh, you're the rack guard guy. And I'm like, yeah, I'm actually, I am the rack guard guy. And we had this nice um, uh, reconnection. And, and you know, I, I have so much love for everyone in the Mashad organization. And uh, it's just so wonderful to 
to have this conversation with you. And it's, it's truly my honor, you know, truly an honor. Oh, yeah. And no, I know you're going to you be like, much. thanks for having me on. It's been nice. Wonderful. Um, and um, I hope to, again, to, uh, well, I'll be listening to you on Saturday night at 9 p.m. You're always live and you have a lot of wisdom to share. And hmm. it's, it's Saturday night, 9 p.m. here in New York, but it's, it's, uh, oh, um, okay. it's uh, Sunday early morning for you. At 11 a.m. my time. Yeah, yeah. yes. Mm. So um, and you do your Facebook live. And, um, you know, is any anything else? You have your all your autobiographies, which is Rogue, Rogue Martial Artist, is it? It's Rogue Black Belt. Rogue Black Belt. Yeah. And yeah. Um, they don't sell it on Amazon, though. I looked. No. Oh, I, I sold thousands of them. I mean, oh. I, I didn't do it to make money. I just did it because I've got some things to say. I, it started oh. out, I just wanted the 60... I wanted the, like the 20 most important life lessons that I've ever learned. And then what were the situation, what was the situation that I learned that lesson in? And then I put it in chronological order and it turned out to be 60 things, not 20. So I took three books. So that's mm -hmm. basically what it is. It, it's an autobiography, but that's not why I wrote it. I wrote it because it's the 20 most important things of, sorry, the 60 most important things I've ever learned. Well, I'm going to go on that website right now and see if I can get a copy. <laughs> and I would just want to say thank you again so much fun and if you ever would like to come on again i know we'd love to hear some more stories and some more some more wisdom of course yeah no problem and we'll meet sometime in new york because we've never been there and my wife wants to come and she's just walked in and she heard me say new york <laughs> so now she's smiling and jumping up and down and, and you, you're, <laughs> you know you're you're i was nice enough to chat with your wonderful wife uh um uh, over when we Skyped and uh, I and was so amazed how what a wonderful cook she is. You know, I, I can't mm -hmm. believe it for the listeners. I, I know because I followed you, but in a, a Michelin rated restaurant, she was allowed to go back and, and cook. And, uh, and and not only that, she's amazing at jujitsu. I would love Mariko, my wife, and, and your wife, yeah. and all of us to train together someday because I yeah. think it would just be fantastic, you know? Yeah, we, we'll go out for dinner. It'll be fun. We'll do that. Fantastic. Thank you mm. so much. And uh, Thanks, I, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right, Roger that. Thanks, Thank Matt. Thanks. Have a good one. Thank you very much. Bye. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at Marshall underscore culture and on Instagram at Marshall culture cast. Please leave a review on iTunes and we'll see you next time on the Marshall culture podcast.